Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Interact Studio. This is Human Touch. To our friends here in the Zoom room, we're so glad you're here, and also the folks joining us on YouTube. Uh, we're happy that you're here as well. This is uh, a wonderful opportunity to talk with an authentic person doing interesting work. I'm Lou Solomon. I have some uh, a really fun guest with us today. Part of what we do is celebrate great communicators, and we need our heroes today more than ever. So let's get to it. Jeff Dugdale is the Associate Athletic Director and the Aquatics Director at Queens University of Charlotte. And Doug is what you might call a super achiever. As, as I look down through the, the accolades in his 12 years coaching uh, the swimming program at Queens, Jeff has been a part of 12 NCAA championship titles, six for men, six for women's, including this year's 2021 championship. And that, that's just the beginning. So with me is my Interact teammate, Susie Adams, and she is going to do the interview with Jeff. She's been really excited about this. So Susie? Yeah. Thank you. Because I'm an Olympic super fan. I never want to be. And then every year I get sucked into the vortex and I'm, and I'm obsessed with it. So Jeff, welcome. Thank you so much. Jeff has been Thanks a friend of ours for, for a bit. Before we talk specifically about Olympic sports and Olympic competition, I want to give you the chance to tell us a little bit about the swimming program at Queen's University of Charlotte and how it became such a powerhouse. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. I think one of the things we can attribute to our program is our unique position to Uptown Charlotte, um, the banking industry, the new energy sector, the um, everything great, the fourth fastest growing city in Charlotte and being able to recruit some of the best of the best um, student athletes who wanna come and get a remarkable experience. I think the other thing is um, about our program and how we've um, been able to move quickly through the ranks is um, we had a strong vision. Um, leveraging that unique position, we want to build leaders for life coupled with um, the buy-in of our values, uh, our athletes engage in um, living excellence as a lifestyle, not as an event. And doing so helps develop their emotional intelligence. And uh, in, in that development, um, you com comes aquatic intelligence for us. And then um, with that comes success. That's great. That's amazing. Now, you have a number of international athletes and would love for you to reflect on what brings them to the university. Yeah, our international presence is um, with purpose, on purpose. Um, our president is adamant that our university looked like the world. And um, we feel that's part of the experience. I had a remarkable experience in college. My roommate was from Israel, a three-time Olympian from Israel. And so I, I think back to the opportunities I had um, that were different because of that. And so uh, having a diverse as well in, as an inclusive environment um, really adds to the university looking like the world and our team looking like the world. And I truly feel 
that that helps our student athletes um, become uh, decisive in their decisions and differentiates them in interviewing for jobs and or grad schools. That's great. You had a number of athletes in the Olympics and now competing in the Paralympics. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, very proud. We had two representing Germany. Marius Kusch represented Germany. He swam with us, was a three-time NCAA swimmer of the year. Uh, I could not be prouder of his, German, uh, of his journey. And he finished 23rd, a little disappointed in his, um, his finish. He was. But as he told me that, um, that uh, he has three more years. And so he'll be, um, he also competed on the medley relay. He's, he's a top, top 12 ranked in the world in the hunter fly. So he just, um, the nerves got to him a little bit, but uh, I couldn't be more proud of how he handled it. And that experience will help him to the next one. We had Annabelle Knoll, who was one of our triathletes who went on to represent Germany as well in the triathlon. She was 31st individually, but more impressively, she got picked because of her um, individual um, success to participate in the mixed relay for Germany that got sixth. And then we had Felix Duchamp, who was a former track and field runner here and swimmer um, here, who um, also helped us in the startup of our triathlon team, uh, represented Romania, and he finished 36. And then I have Hannah Aspen, who will be representing the USA, and she leaves Saturday early morning, excuse me, to Tokyo um, to begin her quest, not only to lead USA, but to come home with some medals. Um, and we couldn't, I talked to her about an hour ago, which was, um, just to let her know we love her and, uh, can't wait to see the great things. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. You know, I think when we reflect on this Olympic, we will think about mental health. This is the Olympics where mental health came to the forefront, largely because of the words and, and actions of Simone Biles. But also in the swimming lane, if you will, Michael Phelps has been very outspoken about his challenges and the importance of mental health. We'd love for you to talk about the mental well-being of elite athletes, your perspective on that, and how you help student athletes take care of their mental health. Yeah. Um, I appreciate this opportunity because of uh, not only Michael Phelps, but in the swimming, you had Allison Schmidt, who is one of the most decorated now. She, too, has a very public um, working closely with Michael and has trained with Michael um, public uh, announcement with her um, struggle with mental health. But I think it, to understand there's so many factors and I always <laughs> I don't want to sound, I'm not a psychologist, um, uh, and I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn, um, so I can't even claim to be one, but here's the deal. There's, I have it broken down into my coaching career. These, these are four to five things that I look for. One is achievement addiction. Achievement addiction is, um, as a coach, we have to be careful of high-performing athletes and or assistant coaches or coaches or peers who um, even with great successes cannot do not celebrate or cannot have the ability to celebrate those successes. And those add to burnout and additional, um, that whole situation of achievement addiction adds to, um, adds to mental health concerns. 
The second is expectations individually and publicly, right? Um, what are your expectations individually? Are they realistic? Are they, um, do you understand? A lot of times I have an athlete sit down to me and tell me they want to win a gold medal. And I tell them that is exactly where we need to start. <clears throat> but if we win a silver, are we going to be disappointed? Are we going to, what is the process that's going to take place? And what happens is a lot of elite athletes think it's all or none. And that comes into playing into a little bit of that achievement addiction. And that can lead to, um, to problems. And then the public expectations, um, NBC, you know, can you imagine? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I can't say that this happened, but NBC probably, um, with no right, I'll say that very clearly, probably had some part in the discussion about when USA, when Simone approached her um, coaches and as in not in the real time moment, but as it got bigger where she was going to go, I can almost guarantee that NBC Sports was um, contacted a little bit about what this is going to do in the ratings, what this does in the um, uh, talking about Michael Phelps. The reason the prime um, the ratings were live in the morning were because in 2008, when Michael had a chance to win um, the eight medals, NBC saw the writing on the wall, and not only did they work with. USA Swimming changed the event order so that it could better fit. They changed when the finals would be so that they could leverage and capitalize. Well, that's a lot of pressure, um, either directly or indirectly to an athlete. I also say um, it's what you do versus who you are. If you start to confuse as a high-performing athlete, if you start to confuse and you don't have somebody, a coach, or anybody to hold you accountable, it's very easy to take um, what you do and cross the line of who you are. And that, that, that becomes very dangerous because um, uh, just like we are in our careers, um, we are defined. It's important that we shouldn't be defined any one way, but other than who we are, not what we do. Um, that can seem to back you into a corner. You have friends and family. A lot of the pressure starts because last year when the Olympics were put off, would you were so close? Could you hold on another year? Could you get through the COVID? Could you people living their life through you and through the pressures of wanting it more than and possibly more than you? I've had many conversations with an elite athlete in helping them come to the transition into life or retirement and the relief because but yet the stress of what they thought it was going to do to friends, family, and uh, um, uh, social um, connections because of the fact that uh, they, what they were counting on this individual. And you can't do that either. And then there's another one that was, um, was brought to light even more so this Olympics. Um, and you would think this would not be the case, but silver and bronze. If you heard Lily King she said, excuse my French, but this is BS <laughs> because there were people on the social media that started to call out the USA and say, did we have a great performance because of the number of silver and bronze? And uh, that brought a new level of pressure to elite athletes because it's sometimes just expected that a gold medal will be won. And uh, that kind of sometimes insults the process. So that's, um, 
if not balanced, and as a coach, we have to watch those roadblocks. And um, it's a lot like a safari. We become the, um, the what do you call that? The, the person who leads the safari. Um, you basically, because if you don't have somebody that's always looking ahead and helping you balance, you will follow the tracks right into a lion's mouth. So you got those who are hunting have their eyes down. Those who are the um, the person helping lead that safari is helping you see the future and see and keep you safe. And that's what our role as coaches is to do. What's the role of fun in that equation? You are a fun guy, <laughs> and and when you look at some of the the pictures of your team it looks like you all are having fun. What's the role of fun and how do you inject that into a very disciplined, high achieving group of people? Yeah, well, I think it starts with the leadership is when you say it, you have to mean it. You can't say let's have fun, but boy, you better go out and win. <laughs> that contradicts. Um, I, I like to demonstrate in the way that where where we put our work we put our work in in practice we um, we do what needs to be done every day and um, and when we get to competition it then we have to turn it off and be have fun um, because that's the time when we come together and a lot of time with school schedules with um, different training regimens with um, uh, different events. Uh, when we come together to compete is almost a team bonding situation. So it's a time for us to have fun, to learn for each other, to be fully engaged into and in making it bigger than themselves, turning the mind off, looking um, and evaluating the process so that we're not too focused on the end uh, result, but on the process to get to that and to be able to make some, um, something bigger than themselves and to create an atmosphere that is going to uh, be enjoyable enough that you wanna repeat it. And I think that's where you get sustainability is um, when people want to repeat that over and over and over. That's terrific. You alluded to this, but I'd love to have you say a little bit more about it. The impact of COVID on what was to have been the, the Olympic year, that being delayed a year, then athletes performing in empty arenas without their friends and family, in many cases, their key support network. What do you believe that impact was? Oh, it's huge. I can give, and many coaches could give examples, but I can give Many, uh, myself, I can from all the way from having a conversation with an individual about um, depression and how they didn't even want to buy into the fact that they could have had depression, but looking back um, on what they they were numb going through um, the fear is some, you know, some people are driven by fear. Some people are paralyzed by fear. The fear of, um, I want to train, but if I get sick, I have to go 14 days of isolation. What does that do? How does that put me away? I would rather, um, I, I don't know. I mean, we had people retire, um, early because they just didn't, um, couldn't, they couldn't see how the, it could be balanced both ways. And I couldn't guarantee them that it could be balanced both ways because we were in an unknown territory as well. 
I also have somebody who was on the verge of making an Olympic team and had a breakdown and said, I don't think, I don't think I want to go this Olympics because my parents can't go. Well, you know, what's important to them. So they, um, they had a little bit of a aha moment of why am I doing this? And is it important to do? I thought it was important to me, but I'm not even excited if I can't have everybody there to support me because what and how do I show them how much I love them and uh, appreciate what they've done if I can't give them or get them to the ultimate games uh, for in their, in their mindset. Um, so we had, it, it was a huge impact. And because of that impact, we have invested heavily into mental health. I have Dr. Joanna Perry. I, I work with a company called Hale Sports. I work with a company called Restoic and many other resources and bringing people in because if um, as a coach, you could, you cannot get surprised by this. You have to be ahead of the game. You have to be aware you have to ask questions and you have to look for inconsistencies and in behaviors. As coaches, we usually know our student athletes better than they know themselves. So we have to be able to have tough to, um, conversations. That's great. And it's great that you have those resources to, to help you. That's, that's really great and important. Would you have been in Tokyo if not for the restrictions? I would not have been, um, not this year, but in, but a little bit about myself is yeah. my greatest joy in life is getting people to the Olympic games and then heading off on a one week beach vacation and watching the Olympics with my family, um, at the beach and just, um, and just enjoying it. Um, I drive my family crazy because, um, they're like, can you please, I mean, every heat, every swim, everything you have a story or how they trained at Queens, but it's, um, that's what I do. Um, and what most people don't realize is that the Olympic games, guess how you as a coach end up watching it usually on a TV back behind, because it is on NBC, it is on everything. They want that deck cleared. And so you're usually in a back room watching off a TV as well. One of the greatest joys that I have, and I was taught by my mentors is uh, try to train your swimmers to perform very well without you, because part of the experience that they'll always remember is being around other people. I couldn't imagine um, being somebody going somewhere new and experiencing it and going, oh my gosh, I'm with the same people every time. Enjoy all the new things that come to um, with you. And it really adds to the remarkable experience. So with that in mind, what were your favorite stories from the pool this Olympics? What were the things that stood out to you? Yeah, I'll, I'll go. There's about uh Four, four or five names, uh, Caleb Dressel, Katie Ledecky, Lydia Jacoby, and Bobby Fink. And I'll tell you about those. Um, Caleb Dressel, just his pure emotion, um, <clears throat> watching his family and knowing how hard he travel, um, trains and um, having had dinner with his coach not um, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and talking about um, to, uh, to, uh, because our two swimmer Marius and Caleb train, um, swam a lot in the, um, uh, in the, uh, meet in some of the meets. So it was great to see that come together. Katie Ledecky, because she's Katie Ledecky. But I think one of the greatest things 
was to watch how she handled a silver medal and to know that I think it shows the world and our younger swimmers that um, don't ever take for granted that somebody's just going to win something or take it. Always train hard and know that you have a chance. Um, Lydia Jacoby, because she proves to the world you can come from small towns. You don't have to have everything perfect. You don't have to. Um, you can come from Alaska. You can uh, you can have a first, and you can use your sport to gain notoriety for the state of Alaska for where she's going to Texas eventually to um, swim. And uh, it just her her just how naive she was. Her reactions were precious. And um, Bobby Fink. Um, because a lot of people, they try to say that we, certain events could be um, dying or are we putting in enough yards or with COVID-19, will our distance swimmers, will they have had trained enough? Um, and I would say watching him swim and win the gold, he not only trained enough, but he trained the right way. And he did, um, he did everything he needed to do. And, and our, uh, the way our distance swimmer swam was really, really um, good. So yeah, I, I love all four of those swimmers and their performances. Lydia Jacoby was just precious to me because when she unexpectedly won the gold, the, her eyes were as big as saucers. <laughs> and then they showed the reaction of everyone watching in a gymnasium, it looked like in Alaska. And it was so, it was just really spectacular. Well, and I also enjoy one of my good friends is Rowdy Gaines and Rowdy Rowdy's an Auburn grad like I am. And we, I love listening to him. I text him and I'm like, holy cow, did you sit down? You really, he is, um, his calls are incredible. And, um, you know, another swimmer who swam here for a little bit, but was Annie Laser, and she had a great story too. That's great. That's wonderful. So this was the 2020 Olympics in 2021. Yep. The next Olympics is a mere three years away. Yep. Is that a good thing or a tough thing for competitors and potential competitors? Yeah, I think it's a great thing. Um, I think this year my expectations were low because what we did see was the year removal really took the older end of the athletes and the, the top and, um, and, and pushed it over a little bit and the newer came through and I, um, and when that newer came through, it was how could they handle their first Olympics? And I feel like we handled it. Excellent. With that in mind now, I think they have room and three years is going to be perfect for them to develop and to become more of our, um, we could probably, I am hoping and counting on um, in, four, in three years, we'll have one of our best Olympics ever. And I hope that will also in, in Paris and that will lead us into LA really nicely. So I'd love your perspective on this because you talked a little bit about TV coverage and the impact of TV coverage. It's my understanding that ratings are down potentially for a lot of different reasons, I'm sure, but people watch and experience events differently now. And so what would you expect to see, or if you were on contract to NBC, what would you tell them to do to make the Olympics more accessible and appealing in 2023. Yeah, there, there's there's some things. Um, 
I say that maybe one safe and one not so safe is I think one not so safe is um, is that one of the things is we whether regardless of the aisle that you sit in, we got we have to stop making everything political. Um, the Olympics it had is. I have so many, one of my best friends was affected in 1980 by being boycotting and um, the games in the athletics uh, arena is not a place I feel to, um, to make um, a statement. Now that is not me saying that an individual athlete can't make a statement. What I'm saying is, is perform, do your job, do and, and, and represent and be and show the world how we can come together and then make your statement or do your statement or however you want to, but outside of the arena. And, um, and if you're that good, it will be heard and it will be heard loud. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is um, one thing I noticed, and I could be wrong, I'd need to see the statistics, but something unique about um, athletes at the Olympic level is they, uh, I used to joke with my mom, I had life too easy. That's why I never got to the Olympic games. Um, that every athlete has an incredible story, um, either from a small town in Alaska, through somebody telling them that they couldn't do it, through anything, you can, you name it. I didn't, I don't, I don't recall, or did I remember as many stories as we normally see. And I think we have to go to the human interest story in more than ever right now, because athletics plays such a big part to unite us, not to divide us. And um, I feel that um, the Olympic games has a very special role because although I'm a fan of the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl is only popular. <laughs> I hate to break it to everyone is only popular in the United States. The Olympic Games is a worldwide experience and the color on those rings, the red, the green, the black, the yellow and the blue is diversity and inclusion. And the way that they are inter intertwined is a is a symbolic place for us to come together. Uh, that's that's amazing. And certainly we celebrate story. So we definitely would would join you in saying, tell us the backstories. But but I think that what you what you wrapped with there is a very significant point. Say more, do more around the diversity and inclusion that is a part of the Olympic Games and the Olympic spirit. That's great. Yeah. Right as we wrap here, we'd love to shift gears for just a minute. There have been some changes in NCA regulations on student athletes and endorsements and, and really owning their name and their likeness. What do you think the impact of that will be on student or athletes in Olympic sports? Yeah. Um... I finished at uh, 1030. I finished a phone call with that on, on, on that exact, exact subject. It's, um, it's something we think is very good. Um, uh, we, we do, we do want our student athletes to be rewarded. Um, there's nothing more rewarding than to, um, than to be able to uh, see our athletes benefit from their success. What you're going to see is um, 
Texas A&M President Robert Gates is um, chairing a, um, a wholesale change of the NCAA, and it, it's going into effect September one, and then they hope to have um, of their first um, endpoints in October, then to the committee in, um, in January to the NCAA to show how it's going to change. The NCAA as we know it and how it will affect um, Olympic sports is, um, is a little bit nerve-wracking. Change is uh, nerve-wracking, and uh, but, uh, but I think it's going to help, but I think these wholesale changes is going to cause everybody, it's not going to, they're not going to see the NCAA as they've seen it today. As we look on the 12th of, uh, of August today, it is going to be completely different. Now, you have two ways to go whenever change comes, right? And I tell our athletes, don't make it difficult, make it simple. You can go bitter or you can go better. At Queens, one of the things we're doing is we're trying to embrace and ready to go better. And whatever comes our way, we'll embrace it and we will do our best to put a show on for our family, friends, and all those who come and support us in the um, Levine Center or at our sports complex or at Queens University as a whole, academically or athletically, we will put our do our best to showcase what we have with what we have. And that's what we do. And that's why um, I think we, we have so much success is because uh, we can do a lot with a little and um, give us change and we'll lead it. So that's yeah. where we are. <laughs> that's wonderful. And I think that's a wonderful way to wrap words to live by for people going through change. Be bitter or be better. Love <laughs> that. Thank you so much, Lou, and I'll give it back to you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness, Jeff, you are uh, just a statesman and so full of heart and your insights. I just loved that. I just thank loved you. it. And thank you, Susie, for crafting such an interesting interview <laughs> as well. That was how blessed are we uh, that he's coaching swimmers uh, in, with, this, with this heart and with this brilliance we and how blessed are we that you were with us this morning you, you definitely made my day and the chat is filled with your your pearls of wisdom <laughs> just loved it just loved it next up human touch is taking a fall break and so we'll be back with you on september 23rd when our guest is tom gabbard Tom is the CEO of Blumenthal Performing Arts, and he will tell us all about the celebration called Charlotte Shout, which gets underway September 17th. Difficult to believe we're at that time of year, uh, but we hope we'll see all of you at that time. Uh, a shout out to the Interact family on the line, Patrick Sheehan, Porter Metzler. Of course, you know Susie. And Jess Barilla is with us, but is, uh, I think, doing other, other things. So you might not have seen her beautiful face. And Kara is our West Coast correspondent. <laughs> she is, a, we claim Kara, and she is a deep, deep friend of uh, the Interact team. But once again, Jeff, wow, thank you. That was, I just think, one of our best experiences on Human Touch. Thank Everybody you. go have a good day. Bye-bye.
by now, 